Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Governor General is out. But the question is, how the heck did she get the job in the first place? How much does it cost to have a Governor General? And is it worth it? And Diane Francis has a great article in the Financial Post about how Canada spent too much time on a vaccination from China instead of getting in line with the rest of the free world. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. I am minding my P's and Q's hoping one day I can be Governor General. Although, that does not seem to matter. Apparently they don't even do a background check. What?! It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. A little political. A little, a little political for the young man. Is it? Judges, we accept that. Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 ZHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air as we complete number week number 45. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, Facebook and Twitter, you'll find the podcast edition of the commentary waiting for you there. Uh, as well, the phone lines are always open on this All Request Friday. Will will play 30 seconds of your favorite going in and out of segments. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. And you can always send us a note through the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Another jam-packed show today, uh, including uh, lots to talk about, whether it's uh, what's happening south of the border, COVID-19, or, of course, uh, the big story that broke yesterday, uh, or I guess the day before, in regard to uh, the Governor General, the report coming in, a scathing report about uh, workplace conditions at Rideau Hall, and uh, we certainly know that story. Uh, here is a clip of the Prime Minister just a little earlier this morning at his press conference when he was asked if he does, in fact, take responsibility for the Governor General. As a government, we've demonstrated time and time again how important it is uh, to create workplaces that are free and safe from harassment uh, and, uh, and in which uh, people can, uh, uh, can do their important jobs uh, in, uh, in safety and, uh, and security. Uh, that is why we moved forward on significant measures uh, for Parliament, for the public service, uh, and why uh, we consider uh, that uh, uh, we needed to accept uh, the resignation of uh, Julie Bayer given the uh, concerns that were raised. Obviously, the uh, work that has been done uh, by people working at Rideau Hall uh, over the past years has always been exceptional. They fulfill important duties for Canadians uh, and, as we saw, uh, were sometimes in very difficult situations. Uh, We want to thank them uh, for their work and uh, reassure them that we will continue to stand up uh, for uh, workplaces uh, that are safe and secure uh, everywhere in the government, but indeed uh, across the country. So he really did not take responsibility for it, although uh, it's it's his decision. And um, there you have it. There is the answer. Let's bring in uh, Robert Fife, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. He's the person that broke this story. Robert, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm fine. What? Why did the prime minister hire uh, or or uh, appoint uh, Julie Payette as governor general? Um, obviously, uh, we know the background. Why would he have made this decision? Well, I mean, she, on paper, she looks great. She was an astronaut. 
scientist, a uh, engineer, a pianist, a very good public speaker. There are a lot of reasons why they wanted to um, go with her. Uh, John Gretchen called them up and said she'd be a great governor general. Why don't you appoint her? The problem is they didn't do any proper background check. The prime minister said today, oh, yeah, they did a rigorous check, which is completely not true. If they had did a rigorous check, in fact, they could have just Googled it, they would have realized that she left uh, two positions, one with the Montreal Science uh, Centre, which is run by Ports Canada, and one with the Canadian Olympics Committee. Uh, uh, She left those organizations because of the way that she mistreated people. And uh, that is, should if they had did that proper check, they would clearly, that would have been a huge red flag bl- uh, uh, flapping away, and they wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have pointed her. But they thought that she was a brilliant choice, and uh, they didn't do the proper security checks that they should normally do. Uh, as you mentioned, obviously didn't follow the protocol and the process, the due process here. But that being said, the, the buzz around Ottawa was this was no surprise to anybody. How could they have not known in the prime minister's office what was going on behind the scenes? Well, in fairness to a lot of people in Ottawa, when she was first appointed, it seemed like a brilliant appointment. But it didn't take long for people to start checking in the background to realize, hey, wait a minute here. Uh, by and by July, people before she took up her uh, vice-regal appointment in, in October, it was pretty clear that there were problems. She had faced an assault charge in the United States with was dropped. She had uh, accidentally killed somebody in an accident. But the, the real problems were the uh, way, way she treat, treated people below her. And uh, I, that is, uh, I don't have an explanation for that, and the prime minister is not telling the truth when he says to Canadians it was a rigorous vetting process. Where does this leave the Prime Minister? Does the average Canadian care about this? Well, I, I don't think that the average Canadian cares that much, but uh, it's not the number one thing on people's conversation, but it's a very important uh, constitutional role, uh, particularly in minority governments, and it also has an important ceremonial role, and I think people do like seeing the Governor-General out doing the many things the governor general does in a ceremonial capacity as the head of the armed forces uh, to the uh, uh, patronage position she holds in terms of Boy Scouts Canada, National Geographic, and, you know, all of these, you know, great not charitable organizations. So, yeah, I think it's an important thing. Yeah, one would hope that he would reestablish the committee that Stephen Harper set up of a panel of experts who would go out and try to find uh, a, a high-profile Canadian who would fit both the ceremonial and constitutional requirements of the Governor General. When he came in, he disbanded that, and he had his own choice, and it blew up in his face. But uh, you know, the sad part, just let me say this, this is the sad mm-hmm. part, is the people at, at Rideau Hall who are on sick leave, who had to take early retirement, who had their jobs and life ruined because... Uh, Julie Payette and her second-in-command, her friend who she brought in from Montreal to be the number two, bullied, harassed, and treated ter- people terribly. And to me, that is the worst thing you can possibly do. Uh, uh, you know, when you're in a position of authority and you treat people below you like they're dirt, which is what she did, I don't have much sympathy for her. And that is the apology that the Prime Minister must make, and he must make sure that whoever is, whoever is appointed is a person of high quality and standards.
Are you surprised the Prime Minister doesn't own this more? I mean, is this, does this not uh, well, he, he talk about his credibility and his lack of judgment? We're not finished with it. He's, he owns this. Uh, I, you know, reporters are going after him hard. I'm going to continue to write about it. He owns this. He's the guy who, who's at fault for this. He knew about it. Uh, they tried to ignore it. And finally, uh, when they got this report, which was so bad, and it will eventually be released, we're told, with names redacted and seeing just how bad it is. Uh, yes, he owns it. And he's trying to wiggle out by saying it was a vigorous process, vetting process. There wasn't. We're watching, uh, not to change gears here, but obviously that's what I'm doing here, uh, Robert. Uh, obviously, we're listening today and the Prime Minister talk about vaccinations, uh, him talking about calling the Huawei, uh, or sorry, the uh, Pfizer CFO, rather, and uh, and and trying to uh, to speed up the, the chain of command. Uh, and again, just keeps going to the point that we will have these by uh, March. The point that I'm making here, he seems to be running around the edges but not really stepping forward and and taking responsibility for any of this Uh, we're going to have lots of vaccines in september 400 million but people want them now and that's the failure unlike the israelis unlike the british and left the americans they went to these companies early and they said we'll pay more but we want this stuff early we didn't do that and now we're not at the back of the line, but in the middle of the line, waiting to get vaccines. And and it's a failure of leadership in this, particularly because the sooner we get vaccines and the people's arms jabbed with this, the sooner we can get our economy back to work. There are so many Canadians, particularly in the hospitality industry, who have, do not have jobs now because they, the businesses are closed. And that that needs to be addressed urgently. And one gets the sense from him that they dropped the ball on this. And now it's going to be quite a few months before, you know, we get more people, millions of Canadians vaccinated. Is there anything more, Robert, on what happened with the, the CanSino deal in China? There's reports coming out that this was all supposed to be a go. And then all of a sudden at the last minute, uh, China pulled back and said, you can't have these and why, then started using the Huawei why CFO. Tr- why would anybody trust China? Yeah. I mean, they steal our technology. Um, you know, they, they hold Canadians hostages. They've uh, punished our, uh, put in embargo on Canadian agricultural goods to punish Canada because of the arrest of Meng Wanzhou on the U.S. Uh, extradition request. Why would we even think this would be a good idea to go with uh, a vaccine from China, which, by the way, uh, there are a lot of questions about Chinese medicine to begin with. Do we really want to put our faith in that? I don't think so. I think we want to put our faith in uh, vaccines that are produced in Western countries that are, that are democracies and that have proper health care systems and checks in the control. So, uh, yes, they, I think, foolishly jumped in bed with, the China, with China on the, on that vaccine, and uh, it blew up in their face. Is there any truth to the report that you know of that uh, the deal was you release the Huawei CFO, we'll release this vaccination to you? No, I, I don't know that. I, I, I don't know that. Right. And I, w- uh, I wouldn't speculate on that. Uh, so moving forward, how does the prime minister put out these fires? Uh, obviously, there's going to be a shortage of vaccine in the next couple of months. We've got the situation with the governor general. These are all self-inflicted wounds for the most part. Well, the governor general, we can you know get a good governor general in there. 
set up a committee, have it have the opposition agree with it, and get a good person there. That's not a problem. Uh, the vaccine is a problem, and uh, you know he he got on the phone to Pfizer uh, president, the global president, finally uh, yesterday. Um, but uh, you know, whereas uh, Bibi uh, Netanyahu of Israel has spoken to the person seventeen times. Um, you know, <laughs> this is not a joke here. You got to be proactive. So I don't know where what the situation is. It evolves every day in terms of the vaccine. Obviously, they're in a panic mode now because they blew it. Um, but we'll have to watch every day and see see if they can get those vaccines here sooner. Uh, last question here, Robert. I saw you on television the other day talking about Pfizer and wanting a tax break. Uh, are we doing enough to make it uh, uh, feasible for these businesses, these companies to do business here? Well, we lost our, our, our largely lost most of our um, pharmaceutical manufacturing business uh, decades ago. Uh, they pulled out when we brought in generic drugs. And um, so that, that has we're, we're now realizing that mistake. Um, they they do want uh, tax breaks, and they want to be I, I, the tax. I don't mind. I think Canadians would accept tax breaks and incentives, providing these companies actually set up facilities in here hmm. and uh, produce uh, drugs and vaccines for Canadians. But nobody wants to give these guys money and tax breaks if we ain't getting anything out of it. Yeah. Robert Fife's been with us, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. Robert, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Really, it comes down to Justin Trudeau, who was more interested in a flashy announcement of a governor general rather than doing the work of making sure it was the right selection. I think that Canadians rightly so are concerned that given this report, and and how horrible the workers uh, were treated that this this doesn't sit well with people and and I, and I share that concern that that what we should be doing is making sure we make the right decision in the first place in general when it comes to the selection of commissioners and and government appointments at the federal level the the system is is deeply problematic in that the federal government has whoever's in power can choose who they want that is NDP leader Jagmeet Singh commenting on the Governor General and the Prime Minister saying that a vetting process did go through, but uh, clearly that wasn't the situation because it wasn't hard to find uh, the red flags that uh, we are all reading about now. Uh, so it'll be fascinating to see how this uh, transpires. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Director of uh, sorry, Director School of Public Administration, Dalhousie University, to talk about the magnitude of the resignation of the Governor General and she is with us now. Lori, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks so much for having me on. Lori, let me ask you, um, why did the Prime Minister choose uh, Julie Payette? I mean, obviously on paper, my goodness, what an incredible candidate for this job. But again, being a rocket scientist and a leader of people or a an ambassador are, are two totally different things. Why would the Prime Minister have done this? Well, you got it, right? Like, obviously, her CV is extremely, extremely impressive, extraordinarily so. 
but what would bring her to this job? I mean, I think for for the Liberals, like if if we sort of think back when she was appointed in 2017, they had come to office in 2015. They had, uh, you know, put out a lot of, of you know, principle-based, value-based statements around the importance of w- women in leadership roles, the importance of science in government, um, you know, the importance of of making evidence-based decisions. Um, so I think, like, for, for them, she hit a lot of those notes. She made a lot of sense. She's bilingual, um, you know, for, for th- and she has, you know, she has national name recognition, right? There was, it was somebody who kind of brought a sense of uh, her own status to the role. Mm-hmm. But again, I mean, obviously we're seeing these issues around fit, obviously. Um, it, it also appears that she neglected a lot of the duties of, of the governor general. Uh, it, it, it appeared at times like she didn't even want to do the job. And I mean, like, I can certainly re- not relate personally, but I can understand um, it would be hard in some ways to have, um, you know, you're in the public eye all the time. You have to deal with this security detail. You've got people are following you around. You don't have any privacy. But on the other hand, um, you know, I can also see it in another way, too. And I think to myself, wow, like, imagine being given a gift like this yeah. and not being able to keep it together long enough to do your five years, frankly. Like, I mean, really, you know, this is the the kinds of, of things that you would be exposed to, uh, the kinds of, you know, the, the sorts of travel conversations, the, you know, the people you'd meet. The, this is this is serious privilege. And so it's strange to try to think through how somebody, even if it wasn't her favorite thing, um, you know, how how could you not make that work for the period of time? And if and if not, then then. Why wasn't the resignation earlier? Uh, and obviously, the remuneration continues even after you you leave this position. How do you think that's going to fly with Canadians? You know, I think that's actually really, in many ways, hard to get one's head around or hard to swallow. And I think, especially in the context of of the pandemic, where people are really, you know, people who have made all the right decisions, right, who have saved, who have ran businesses, who have, have done everything to, to make a future for themselves and their family. People are losing what they've got. People are losing everything. And so to, to, to kind of then see this sort of thing is, is really hard for people. It's, it's just, it, it resonates. And that's why I think this is, it's not just about the Constitution, right, which is, which is really important. It's not just about democracy. It's also about just how completely um, counter this is to the experience of Canadians and what we're going through right now. Uh, it, it's it's interesting how the world can change almost uh, on a dime and how what was fashionable at one point is now incredibly uh, out of fashion. What does this say about the Prime Minister's credibility or his lack of judgment? This is a self-inflicted wound. The red flags were there. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that this, you know, something like this at this point, like, he is not personally responsible for anything, the behavior of another adult, right? Obviously, um, what if we, we don't have the clear contents of the report in front of us, but we know what the general subject matter is. And the prime minister is not the person to whom the alleged, the, you know, the allegations are, are directed, but he appointed her. And as you say, this is a question of judgment. And the truth is, the prime minister is extremely powerful and makes lots of decisions. And, you know, all of his decisions affect us. And so it's, you know, even t- just kind of taking a step back from this particular case, he is in a situation where he has to defend his decisions and his approach to decisions. And he has to tell people how he's going to avoid doing this again.
Uh, we just watched him in a uh, in, in a news scrum, and and he was asked the direct question if he takes any responsibility for this. Obviously, because this is his decision, mm-hmm. uh, and, and he seemed to dodge, dodge that question and, and seemed to say that there was protocol uh, put in place and that that protocol uh, was was followed. Does he need to just step out in front of this uh, and, and say, "Whoops, I goofed." Yeah, I mean, some, so some I have been caught in this mistake before, where sometimes the prime minister, uh, there's something going on. Um, the prime minister doesn't apologize. The prime minister doesn't apologize, and I've, you know, said, okay, well, I guess he's not going to, and then he does. So yeah. uh, it's possible that he could change his tune on that. And this is just sort of early days. I see that this is a tough situation for him. You know, obviously, you know, this is not what he wants to happen. And Parliament is going to resume on Monday, and he's going to ha- be peppered with questions on you know, how this all happened. And you you bet the opposition is going to be putting this at, at his doorstep. But that's the job of the prime minister. You can't avoid accountability. Like the, yeah. this is, you know, the system is in some ways, some would argue that it's a flaw of the system that we concentrate so much power in one person. But you know what? Uh, we know who to talk to when things go wrong. Are you concerned that now people will start to question whether we even need this position? I think people are questioning that. I think people have been questioning that anyway. And, um, you know, my my reaction to that is that I completely understand that sentiment. The trouble is, um, and I think we could honestly, we could find ways to handle with the, cer- the ceremonial side, right? Like for a cabinet shuffle, just like the one that happened last week. Do we need the governor general there? Eh, you know, we could probably manage that with the prime minister and the clerk of the Privy Council to get the paper signed and everything's good. The trouble is when you start digging into the rest of the Constitution, the governor general the, as the Queen's representative, but as the governor general of Canada is a key um, institution in that constitution. And so I don't mean to rhyme. <laughs> if, if we decide <laughs> no, go ahead. We're going to, oh yeah. Uh, if we decide that we're going to remove that position, you know, like on paper, in the constitution, she's the person who appoints senators. She's the person who appoints cabinet ministers. She's, you know, she's the person who appoints judges. It, it's really the prime minister, but you know, in, in the institution, it's her that does it. And so if we remove that role, then, then what do we do? We've got to assign that to somebody else. So, you know, for example, okay, we just acknowledge that the prime minister appoints senators. All right. But then if we do that, it's like, well, why would we have that? Why would we have a whole institution of, of legislators that the prime minister appoints on a whim? Why don't we change the Senate? And so then you start going down the list, right? Yeah. And we'll rip the whole thing apart. So it, all that way of saying, if we change the role, it's not something we can extrapolate and the rest of the system stays intact. It, we'd have to just r- rip the thing down and build it back up. Will this resonate with Canadians? And, and, and in addition to that question, and this will be the last one, um, are, has politics, will politics change post-COVID-19? Are, are Canadians' uh, values, attitudes, priorities changing post-COVID-19? Uh, do we want flash? Do we want results? Is it a different world post-pandemic? Oh, I think so. And I think we're, we probably don't even have all we need right now to be able to predict how all those changes are going to happen. But I think, yeah, I mean, even uh, the presence of government in our lives have changed what, what we need government for, what we need government to do, uh, the kinds of priorities that we're going to have going forward. I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis on inclusive growth, uh, inclusive strategies for building back. And I think, you know, it's, in that context, the things that we're going to be focusing on are really things that are that are in the interest, in the public interest, and we need public institutions to be on board with those things and not distractions from those things. 
Uh, what about gum- uh, the the ability for government to be nimble? It seems like you know private industry. We've seen everybody react to this and almost you know the keywords pivot, nimble, all those things. And yet government, yeah. whether it's education, whether it's uh, vaccines, whatever, it's like turning the Titanic. Is there mm-hmm. any way that, that that we'll learn something out of this? Yes, I think that we have in many ways. I mean, right now we're seeing um, you know a lot of stress around the rollout of the vaccine, and that's that's not comforting at all. And it's, it's, you know, pe- people are extremely attentive to that. But we've also seen some opportunities and some examples of, you know, serious responsiveness and, you know, really sharp turnaround in terms of getting programs out, getting benefits out. And so I think from that perspective, and, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, kind of truncating procedures so that things can go faster. And so we can't turn back that clock now. People know that the government actually can move quite quickly. And mm-hmm. so I think there's going to be a lot more pressure to see, okay, if we can, if we can get things done quickly during a crisis, then what can we do in, in ordinary time? Boy, that's a valid point. Dr. Lori uh, Turnbull has been with us, Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Lori, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me on. Hello, Prime Minister. Amanda Connolly with Global News. Former governors general traditionally get an annuity worth roughly double or more what most Canadians earn in a year, plus an expense account of roughly $100,000 per year. My question has a couple of parts. Will Madame Payette get a full annuity and expense account despite not, or despite resigning early? And given Madame Payette's record of questionable expenses, given the questions about her judgment on how she conducts herself, do you believe that she can be trusted to use those expenses responsibly, or will you change the rules to require public disclosure of those? Uh, This country has uh, very clear rules and regulations and processes and procedures uh, in place uh, to follow on uh, in in these cases of uh, reporting uh, reporting expenses or indeed on annuities for governor generals. Uh, Those processes will be followed, but uh, obviously uh, we're always open to having discussions on uh, changes that need to be made moving forward. But will you make them more stringent? We will always be open to uh, improving processes in place uh, around this government. All right, let's bring in Jasmine Moulton, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, and again, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh, obviously uh, very, very uh, 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 critical of this position and the amount of money that it does cost taxpayers. Uh, Jasmine, thanks for your time. I hope you're doing well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. What does it cost us to have a governor general? Well, every year it costs us uh, $22 million for the, uh, just the office of the governor general while they're in office. Um, so while they're in office, they make 288000 a year, but and also get a lot of perks, including an official residence, a uh, jet to travel, etc. But the issue here that we're t- discussing today is the expenses that former, so ex-governors general get once they're out of office. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're not that critical right now, at least of the pension element. They get $140,000 a year annually. Um, taxpayers can decide what they think about that. Um, but we're, what we're really calling into question here is this really weird clause that was introduced back in 1979, which is essentially a taxpayer-funded expenses for life program that yeah. Canadian governors general qualify for um, that can include office expenses, travel expenses, um, and in addition to that, they also, uh, former GGs, get multi-million dollar startup grants to create charitable organizations. Um, so as uh, some of your listeners might recall, a few years ago, it came out that 
Adrian Clarkson, who had left office in 2005, well, she billed taxpayers for over a million dollars in office expenses um, that she said were a private matter. And so taxpayers have no idea what she spent that money on. Uh, obviously, this has been a huge uh, issue, and as you mentioned, especially after you're out of the office and you continue uh, to charge the taxpayer, um, in this situation where, for all intents and purposes, the Governor General has been fired, I mean, she resigned, but obviously that was after the Prime Minister paid her a visit and, and told her to, so will we continue to have to pay out all of this money even though she was let go for, you know, for she, she was basically dismissed? So we have no reason to believe that Julie Payette will not qualify for all of these benefits. Uh, so the pension, for example, of 140000 a year, um, which is officially an annuity, um, that's enshrined in the, Governor Ge- the Governor's General Act, and it doesn't require the service of a full term to be eligible. Um, and so we have no reason to believe that she won't be eligible, even though she left, um, you know, allegedly uh, somewhat disgraced. There's a report. Uh, we don't know all the details yet, but allegedly, uh, you know, it's it's quite damning. So it will be interesting. Um, you know, I think taxpayers are right to be mad about Adrian Clarkson's expenses um, post off after she left office. But, you know, she left on a, a pretty positive tone um, comparatively, allegedly to uh, Julie Payette. So do you think there will be more discussion on this and what happens to some sort of severance or what she gets getting a walking out the door? Or is this it? It's it. It's set in stone and she gets what she gets. Well, two years ago when it, uh, you know, a scathing report from the National Post had come out about Clarkson's expenses, Trudeau promised that he'd review this program, uh, but he's since done nothing. So the Taxpayers Federation were saying, you know, it's time to scrap this outrageously wasteful program of taxpayer-funded expenses for life uh, once they leave office. Uh, so we have a petition right now on our website, taxpayer.com, uh, calling on Trudeau to finally act. He said he would two years ago, uh, but again, he's he's done nothing. Are you surprised that, you know, I mean, obviously on paper, uh, this is a, uh, you know, a, a brilliant resume, uh, to say the least, um, but clearly many red flags in the past. Are you surprised the Prime Minister let it get this far? Well, there are some reports that, uh, you know, we haven't necessarily delved into too far, but there are some reports of people saying that she wasn't properly vetted in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so that should, you know, concern everybody that, uh, you know, when there's not transparency around the process by which uh, our head of state is, you know, really appointed. Um, so th- I think that that's really problematic in itself. Um, but especially this problem of transparency and accountability goes further than that. Um, I think probably a lot of your listeners would expect that for every taxpayer dollar that's spent, the government needs to be transparent about what that was spent on. But we don't know. Every year, uh, former governors general can spend up to $100,000 without reporting any of it to the public. We only learn about it once they exceed the $100,000 threshold. So in about, I think, nine years uh, since 2005, Adrian Clarkson has exceeded the $100,000 threshold of uh, these expenses that she's billed to taxpayers. Um, and that's the only reason we know that she's billed us $1.1 million in quote-unquote office expenses since leaving office. Um, but we wouldn't know about that uh, if she hadn't 
exceeded the threshold. So there's definitely an issue of uh, lack of transparency and accountability here. And, uh, you know, there might be a lot of Canadians who think, you know, this is an important role. Uh, she has important constitutional duties. And they're not necessarily calling for a constitutional overhaul or calling to erase the office. But we just want some accountability. If you're going to take our money in taxes, you have to explain what you're spending that on. And it's not sufficient for Adrian Clarkson, for example, to just say, you know, my spending is private um, when you're spending public dollars. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation have started a petition demanding that the Canadian government stop forcing taxpayers to pay for the expenses of governor generals after they leave office, including the current one. Jasmine Moulton's been with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Jasmine, thanks for the time. Be well. And thanks so much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is an, an absolutely fascinating article uh, in the National Post uh, today, uh, and it is from Diane Francis, editor-at-large uh, to the Financial Post. The title is, Was the Botched Vaccine Rollout a Result of Trudeau Placing Too Much Faith in China? And this is the story of the Cancino deal, which is a, uh, a Chinese company that uh, the Trudeau government had made a deal with in order to get a vaccination. However, when, uh, and again, Diane will help me with this, as soon as uh, it came time to send the uh, vaccine here for approval and such, the Chinese government stepped in and said no. And uh, according to this article, a possibility is that, in fact, they wanted to deal uh, the Huawei CFO in order to release the vaccination. Uh, Let's bring in Diane Francis, editor-at-large of the Financial Post. Diane, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. I am indeed. This is uh, it's one of those stories that's out there, but it's not getting a lot of attention. Can you give us a little bit more uh, on the actual story and what went down here? Well, I think what's interesting and, and I'm you know, I'm a cynical business person. I've been doing this for a long time. But uh, I think it's quite uh, the timing of suddenly uh, pushing out the GG, the governor general sort of interrupts a building tempest about this COVID mess that the Prime Minister has created. We have no vaccines. We're not vaccinating people. Everybody is locked down. And he's botched it up in in an awful way. And so, you know, I, I everybody is furious about this. I mean, if there were a poll or an election tomorrow, he would be very, very uh, heavily defeated. And that, that so so then suddenly... As a, as a major interesting distraction, you know, everything is now about a woman who was appointed into a privileged position who thought she was the queen and not the GG and got pushed out. That's hardly, you know, on a par with the fact that, you know, this COVID thing is, is awful, but it's a very nicely timed distraction, a shiny object, if you like, that everybody's going to chase. Now, that news cycle isn't going to last for very long because who really cares? I'm not happy about her pension. But, you know, we're talking about people's lives being lost because this guy doesn't know what he's doing. And his minister doesn't know. And his cabinet doesn't know. So the story that was given to me from a very high-level person in the international global pharmaceutical world was that, and I can't verify it, but this is what I was told, and this person doesn't gossip, uh, you know, in a, in a sort of a loose way, was that the deal was made with China 
pushed by all the people that push him to do things for China against the wishes of Canadian people, like Chrétien and all the power corporation guys in the banks and the insurance companies who don't want us to get the Chinese upset. And he was convinced to do this deal, and he missed the boat on signing solid deals with other farms, with Pfizer more, for more volumes and so on. And at the very last minute, the Chinese said, free the, the Weiwei woman, Weiwei woman, or you're not, you're, we're not going to give you the drugs. So he walked right into an extortion scheme. I mean, why would you make a deal putting your, your, the lives of the people you're responsible for at risk with a, with a country like Canada, which has been doing nothing but kicking us in the teeth for years? I so mean, this it, is to me a shocking development, and this is something that I want. I hope the opposition is going to pick up on once all this silly GG stuff dies down, and and gets to the bottom of it. This this has got to be an inquiry. So this how is, did this keep us out of line with the Pfizer and the other vaccines? So if I'm if I'm hearing this correctly, he was spending so much time on this China deal that he didn't line up for the other ones. Well, he did, but he delayed, you know, whatever he was working on that. He thought this would be great. And all of his China whispers said, oh, yeah, yeah, let's do a deal with China. It'll start to mend the relationship, whatever. And he, and he, and he counted on it completely. I mean, you would, shouldn't have even talked to these people. They're holding two businessmen in jail, for goodness sakes, for no reason. He shouldn't be talking to Chinese companies and Chinese government officials. But he did anyway. And it's just, it, it, to me, it's just the height of naivete, or it could be something worse. I really would like to know if there's Canadian investors in that company who he was making this deal with. Anyway, the company was probably overruled or controlled by the Chinese government who said, give us Wang back or no deal. And at that point now, everybody else has been snapping up everything that Pfizer can produce. So we've certainly we have certainly noticed in the last couple of months, weeks that the prime minister's tone has visibly changed towards China. Again, for 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 the longest period of time, he sort of dodged the issue. He wouldn't he wouldn't answer questions directly. He wouldn't stand up to China for lack of a better phrase. Then all of a sudden, he he, he changed his position and he started talking tough with China. Is that a result of this slap in the face? Well, I think he's talking tough with China because myself and others have been on his case about how he's so poorly handled the whole thing. And then, of course, the Tories led a motion in the House saying we will vote, it, vote you out of, out of office if you don't deal with the Huawei problem and China and the 5G and all of that sort of thing, which has still not been dealt with. So there was a, a pressure being built on him. So he made that he paid lip service to the point which he could and maybe thought this would be or was convinced that this would be a great way to to calm down the thing and and, you know, make nice with the Chinese again. But then they, you know, I mean, you can't deal with people that that will just throw people, innocent people in jail for two years. You cancel canola contracts, badmouth us, threaten us, threaten Chinese citizens that live in Hong Kong who are Canadians and Chinese people that live in Canada. I mean, and we'll look what they're doing in Hong Kong. <coughs> Excuse me. So this is not, this is a rogue nation. This is not a nice nation. And you don't put the trust 
for your health of your people in the hands of a rogue nation. This is like cutting a deal with Russia. Many have questioned why this government and, and why Justin Trudeau has a love affair with China. Is it, we know the history with his father and, and that sort of thing. Is it that or is it uh, like others who have, who have been in his cabinet that there are many politicians who have lots invested in this country, in China? They have lots invested. All you have to do is go to the, uh, the China-Canada Business Council website You'll see our ambassador there. You'll see all of the business people that do lots of business there. Jean Chrétien's grandson is, is, on the cha- is the chair of the board. Jean Chrétien is the big booster for China, and he is, you know, he is actually mentor to our prime minister. And, you know, the other thing that's interesting is that this was bubbling along. And nobody except me today in the column, because I was given this information from high-level sources, has written about the Chinese connection to the fact that we're without drugs. But, you know, suddenly the foreign minister, Champagne, is, is demoted. And everybody thought, well, that's terrible. He was demoted. Well, he was no good anyway, but the point is he's a buddy. He's a, he's a big Chinese appeaser. I think he brokered this deal. So we all know how China has interwoven itself into our education, into our, our uh, health system, uh, into uh, military, security, uh, technolo- uh, technology, and such. How, what do we do now? How do we reverse that? Uh, it's clearly uh, through various polls that, that Canadians do not have a soft spot any longer for the Chinese Communist Party. So with a country like Canada that is now pretty much a slave to China, how do we reverse that? Where do we go from here? Well, we need a different prime minister. I mean, you know, you need somebody like, uh, I, I mean, I like Aaron O'Toole because he was one of the first ones to talk about. It. He was in the military. He knows the game. He knows what they're doing. Look, the other thing is we have the number one top spy in Canada is sitting in a jail awaiting trial because he was a spy for China, probably, at the very highest level. What that means is China had someone, potentially, allegedly, at the very highest level of Canada's espionage and policing um, establishment, who also had access to the Americans' mm-hmm. intelligence, the British intelligence, the Australian intelligence. You, do, do you know what a black eye Canada has right now in intelligence circles, in the Five Eyes Network, they call it? I mean, you know, we've already been warned about this. We had a Chinese spy four years ago. I mean, you know, they just pick us off because they can, and we just don't push back. Australia is much smarter They've been much tougher with China. So we need somebody who's going to stand up for us. And by the way, as far as Canadians, I have never in my 40-odd years of covering politics and polling in this country ever seen a poll so high, so united, like 85 90% of Canadians angry and want something to happen with China because of what they've done. I mean, I've never seen a poll like it, and yet we have a prime minister who is not watching, usually watches polls, who's just not getting it because there's something surreptitious and probably very creepy going on. 
Diane Francis is with us, editor-at-large with the Financial Post. You can read the article, Was the Botched Vaccine Rollout a Result of Trudeau Placing Too Much Faith in China? Diane, thank you so much for the uh, for the time and insight. Do you think this is going much farther than your article? Well, I think other people are going to pick up on it. Uh, and, you know, once people stop chasing this silly GG story and start to get to things that really count and matter... You know, I mean, we we are we are becoming an outlier among our allies because we're such wimps. You know, Diane we're allowing Francis. the Chinese to to get listening posts and set up uh, operations as a backdoor entry to the United States. That's not going to wash with Mr. Biden. And so I think that there's going to be some interesting mention of the Chinese problem in Canada uh, in that phone call. And he's got to smarten up. I mean, I, I really don't like Trudeau. I think he's a terrible leader. And I think and there's nobody in the Liberal Party that, that is better. And so I think we need an election. Diane Francis, editor-at-large, the Financial Post. Diane, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, lots to talk about with our next guest, uh, primarily U.S. and Canada politics, uh, but we'll certainly touch on the Governor General. Let's bring in Wayne Petrosi, professor with the Department of Politics and Public Administration, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Wayne, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. So, Wayne, uh, before we get started and move into the United States, just your thoughts about what is happening with the situation uh, in the governor general. And uh, and and I guess my question is, obviously, the resume, you know, is great here for Julie Payette. That being said, uh, why would the why would the prime minister have suggested her without doing a, a thorough background check? Because it seems there's there were lots of red flags around. It, yes, it, it does certainly seem that way. In fact, his, his press conference today, he almost seemed to acknowledge that uh, the fact that here, here was a candidate who was both female and a, 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 a female who had succeeded uh, tremendously in a, a field typically dominated by males, I, I think that that ended up driving the decision that, yes, she would make a great governor general and uh, led them to almost... Uh, not even pay much attention to, as you said, the red flags with your previous employer. What does this say about the Prime Minister's office, the Prime Minister's credibility? I mean, obviously, he is, it's very well known, he's the one that makes the suggestion here uh, to the Queen. What about the lack of judgment here? Does this resonate? Well, it's, uh, you know, I would, I guess, say it's just, I think he was just uh, so keen to get someone who, as I said, uh, fit the demographic, uh, and and you know he wanted uh, a woman, and, and the woman of uh, who had succeeded in the fields of science uh, as a great role model for young women in Canada, and I think that led him to set aside whatever he was other information he may have been provided by staff, and to go ahead with the recommendation. Have politics changed post-COVID-19? I mean, you talked about the image. We remember when the prime minister came in, it was, you know, self-described uh, uh, feminist and such and, and putting across uh, that image, for lack of a better word. Uh, have, have politics changed now? It's less about image and people want action. People want, people want substance. Well, uh, yeah, I wish that was what you were, what you just finished with was true. Uh, I, I still think that uh, image carries, uh, carries a lot, and 
and and you see it in you know among political actors in, in the midst of COVID, who are uh, spending a lot of time uh, cultivating this sense that they're both empathetic and earnest in their concerns. Uh, you know, we have a premier in this province who who seems to spend almost do that's all he seems to do is to carry on like the fellow next door who I feel for you and. I think Canadians do want action. After a while, this does begin to wear thin, but I don't think uh, politicians have abandoned that approach. Oh, let's talk about uh, the Prime Minister and uh, President Joe Biden. Uh, Obviously, we've heard a lot about the phone call uh, that was happening today. I'm not sure if it's happened or not. Uh, What do you think they will talk about? And most importantly, where does the Keystone Pipeline fit in this conversation? Well, I, I think, first of all, the, the phone call, and I think in a sense, represents almost a return to a tradition. Canada traditionally has been the first, if, in many cases, the first call mm-hmm. that a incoming president makes. As a consequence of our intimate relationship with the Americans for so, so long. Uh, so I think in that sense, it, it's a return to normalcy, to, to, to tradition. And, and, and that's well and good. As, as for uh, the... the it's not much beyond that. The, the Canadian-American agenda is very large. It's very complex. And historically, it has always been one where sometimes we agree and sometimes we don't. Uh, but at the end of the day, we remain uh, two countries sharing the longest undefended border in the world, so to speak. And so, yeah, your keystone is not going to get approved. Uh, I mean, I think the behavior of uh, the Alberta government is astounding in this regard. If you think about it, Democrats have been signaling for the better part of a decade that they do not want that pipeline built. And nonetheless, the Alberta premier, you know, three months ago, so about six weeks before the American election, put a billion and a half dollar bet on Trump winning. Uh, It's astounding, actually. And so the the kind of indignation now being manifest uh, in in Alberta seems a bit odd. Um, Biden entered the race and said he would stop that pipeline. It's just, uh, you know, what would you expect him to do on his first day in office? Reverse a stand that he had taken and that his predecessor had taken under the Obama administration, of which he had been a vice president, this this was is not a surprise. Uh, anyone who watched even casually saw this happening, and uh, we know Canada's going to move on. We have lots of other issues in our file uh, with our American friends, and th- those will uh, take center attention. So at this point, uh, despite what he says, there's not much the prime minister can do here. Is this a blessing in disguise for the prime minister? The decision's been made for him. Well, yeah, there isn't much you can do, and and you know, I, I I'm not sure it's a blessing because, of course, uh, his domestic opponents will portray this as some kind of failure. Uh, but if it's a failure of Canadian politicians, it's a very long-running failure. Because uh, when even when uh, Stephen Harper was Prime Minister of Canada, the Democrats were on record as opposed to Keystone. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, under the Obama administration, they had frozen the project and started the process for cancellation. So, if it's a failure 
uh, for uh, political leaders, it, it, it's a long-running one. And so, for, as far as you're concerned, this is a done deal, then, Wayne. It's over. I, it, it's hard to imagine he can't walk this back. The environmental lobby has been very significant influence in the Democratic Party, uh, and it would be it, it's just almost impossible to imagine first day in after a terribly difficult uh, election process that the president would turn his back on a major constituency. All right, let's talk about uh, the United States and their future moving forward. We all certainly know what happened over the last several weeks and in, in how this powder keg uh, eventually exploded with the with the riots on on the Capitol. Um, many thought, and, and we certainly saw with the uh, reinforcements around the inauguration, that there was another shoe to drop here, that something would happen. And then, of course, it all went out, uh, went off without a hitch. There was chatter of of what could happen in other capitals, uh, state capitals. None of that materialized. Where is the Donald Trump movement now? Well, I, I certainly they're really well dug in the Republican Party. Uh, in fact, at, at the level of, of the House of Representatives, they have a stranglehold on, on the Republican Party. You saw that with the large number, more two-thirds of all the sitting House members uh, voted to turn, uh, overturn the results. Um, they have a somewhat smaller beach, beach uh, uh, hold on, on the Senate, uh, but the, the the Trump movement is very well dug in the Republican Party. Uh, beyond that, I'm not sure it, it was ever much more than a, a, a political movement animated by somebody willing to, uh, through the use of social media, uh, whip people into a frenzy. And uh, going forward, I think the, the most interesting uh, struggle will be over the Republican Party. Who's going to run it? Mitch McConnell, obviously uh, distancing, trying to distance himself and the party from this. As you mentioned, obviously, uh, the movement has a stronghold on the Republican Party. Where does that leave uh, the Republicans? Because it, it seems they're at a crossroads here and they have to make the decision whether it's more Trump style politics or they uh, redefine what the Republican Party is. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I suspect we're going to wa- we're going to watch and probably over the balance of the year, uh, a kind of visible then invisible civil war within the party over who's ultimately going to control it. Uh, I think McConnell gave you a hint of that when he indicated that uh, he thought that the President Donald Trump committed impeachable acts. Uh, you saw the backlash, I think, to McConnell's musings from the House Republicans when they uh, managed to get 105 signatures demanding a meeting to get rid of the third-ranking Republican in the House, Liz Cheney, because she had supported the impeachment. Hmm. Uh, So you're going to see them go at each other in that kind of way. Uh, And because McConnell didn't just finger the president, President Trump, in his remarks on the Senate floor, he also said there are other powerful people within the Congress who had who have to be held to account. And he's referring to his own, some of his own colleagues, uh, Cruz and Hawley in the Senate, and uh, the Republican leadership in the House, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Scalise, 
the top two ranking members and and others. So you know, he, and they f- fired back, and I think now they will continue to go at each other. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, both sides are very well equipped financially. You know, Trump raised over two hundred twenty-five million dollars uh, in the in the last six weeks of his term, and it's money that's now in a pack that he controls. So if he wants to use that money to go after Republicans who supported his impeachment, he's got a lot of firepower there. And the, some of the senior Republicans on the other side, um, including McConnell, have, again, very hefty political action committees with uh, lots of money in the bank that they can use to try to fire back. So I think we're going to watch this kind of, uh, now we see it, now we don't, civil war over the party, the soul of the party. Uh, you have to wonder how long they can do that before they realize the only the only one we're hurting here is ourselves. Uh, you, you talked about Ted Cruz. You know, you've got to wonder about the Ted Cruz's, the Lindsey Graham's. For them, is the option you either defend Donald Trump or you fail? Well, it, it seems to be. Uh, I mean, ironically, both Graham and uh, you know Graham stands out as someone who, in, only in the last day or so almost has reversed what he had said, yeah. you know, the week before when he, he said it was clear that Trump had uh, had engaged in acts that, that were beyond the pale. And last night, apparently, he changed his mind and said, no, he hadn't. And, and it's the same with uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House leader for the Republicans, who on the floor of the House a week ago said that uh, Trump was responsible. Last night on Fox, he said, no, he wasn't. So I... I I think these folks are uh, have different visions of what the Republican Party is, and I don't think the party can be a home to both visions. You, you know, we we all know how how strong this base is uh, for Donald Trump. We, we, you know, we've talked about it over the uh, years many, many times. Um, that being said, after what happened on Capitol Hill. Uh, is there any part of that base or any part of the Republicans that are saying, wait a sec, this has gotten way out of hand and we have helped fuel that? Is there any in the base that are changing their minds because they've realized it's turned into anarchy? I, I, I don't think there's any question or any doubt that, in fact, a not insignificant number of Trump supporters that in that 74 million voters uh January 6th was a bridge too far. And uh, I suspect his so-called core or base is significantly less than that now. Now, that's good news and bad news, I guess. Uh, you know, you, you might see it good news to see the drop-off in, in, in support and, and people, again, returning either to non-participation, which I think is likely for many of them. They just will, won't be bothered with politics any further or return to a more traditional uh, Republican conservative posture. Uh, but on the, the bad news is, is those who remain in the base, in a sense, are even more radicalized, yeah. are even more true believers. Although some of them seem to be disillusioned on social media that the inauguration actually went through. They were expecting something, I don't know, magical to happen? I'm not sure. Uh, it seems that some of them are a little disillusioned. Well, they're certainly disillusioned, and, and in part... Uh, that's a product of, of, of the campaign that, that brought him to that point in the first place. I mean, mm-hmm. think about it. 
from November onward, you had literally hundreds of Republican officials at the local level, the state level, the national level, on local media, local radio, local TV, social media, YouTube, Twitter, repeating a series of lies day after day after day after day after day. And not a surprise, people respond, some people responded by accepting this alternative view of reality. And of course, January 6th came, and it came crashing down. It, it, it's not real. It was, it, was, it was made up. It was fake. It was a lie. And yes, some, as a consequence, are disillusioned. And, and yes, I think they will leave. They will simply return uh, to their lives, and I think their, their time in politics will come to an end. But for those who stay true, who still think it was stolen, who still think that this is a crime and that we must fight this and resist this going forward, I, I, they're even going to be an even a more extreme echo chamber. Uh, you know, it's amazing that elections can go on for over 200 years and there's always glitches, this sort of thing. But now all of a sudden everything is different because it appears Americans don't trust any of their institutions or it's selective trust. Um, how, how does America regain its trust in these institutions, which, thank goodness, held strong while there was this attack on democracy? You know, we, we have a, a kind of historical comparison that, that we can perhaps provide us with some comfort. Uh, decline in trust in institutions, you know, in the immediate period after Richard Nixon and his forced resignation. You know, as you came into 1980, trust in institutions in, in the United States, in its political institutions, the Congress in particular, was like under 20%. Uh, I mean, it really cratered. And... You know, as we see, fortunately, uh, as time moved on, governments began to do what governments are supposed to do in terms of govern and provide services and and and, and conduct themselves in in a manner uh, reasonably becoming. Um, that trust began to rebuild. If not, it wasn't always transferable. Sometimes it was just attached to a particular candidate or president that you liked, Ronald Reagan, for example, in the eighties in the United States. But nonetheless, it did manage to return to a, a, a much a higher level than what it had been, say, by 1974. Mm. And so there's hope that if we can get a period of reasonable government, where government officials conduct themselves in a manner that's becoming of their offices, and government does act on people's real needs, and the real needs now are pretty obvious, uh, between the economic cratering in the United States, the pandemic, People's needs are pretty obvious. If, if you take care of those needs, I think you can begin that process of rebuilding trust and confidence. Will America still be as divided uh, one year from now? Oh, I think so. Uh, they have to come to terms with, with the, the, those crises, but underlaying it, they have to come to terms with the reality of race in America. And that's not an overnight job. Yeah. What about Donald Trump's brand? Last question. What about the brand of Donald Trump? Is it any value, loss value, more value? Oh, Depends I, who you I, ask. <laughs> I, I think it's, uh, 
you're gonna it's gonna be like those mugs you find at flea markets. <laughs> hey, you know what? That's a good idea, Wayne. We got to keep our uh, our eyes peeled for some of those old campaign mugs. They might be worth something now. There you go. Wayne Petrosi has been with us, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration, Ryerson University. Wayne, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Let's bring in Reverend Jim Carrier, Good Shepherd Church in St. Catharines for his weekly message of hope. And he is with us now. Jim, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. You know, it's been a very long lockdown when you start uh, hearing a lot of Nickelback on the air. (laughs) (laughs) I am still waiting for you to play us in with your clarinet. Is that going to happen, Jimmy? I remember before you were, you know, you 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 uh, changed roles and and went to your, which of course, let's be honest, uh, you know, working for uh, God is a lot better than producing my show. But you even promised way back then that you would uh, bring your clarinet in and play, and you haven't. Okay. Well, uh, okay. Uh, let me practice something, and then I'll lead you in in a couple. So but let's do that. Up in like so, a year, so well, that's okay. Like we're going to know the difference. Like we're going to know the difference. <laughs> you know what you could even do? You could have someone else play it, or just tell Will to play something clarinetty. I'm not going to oh, know the difference. I'm not even there. Maybe I'll pre-record it. That's it. That's it. So you know what would be I very cool? Actually, I do have something pre-recorded. You know what? Can you do like the opening of the Friendly Giant? Uh, I could probably learn that. It's fairly simple too. Yeah. If you could bring us in with the intro of the Friendly Giant, that might be neat. <laughs> all right. No, Jim, I haven't been drinking. Not at all. You'd think I have. <laughs> all right. Uh, so here we are, and uh, more, uh, you know, we're, we're all trying to get through this. And, uh, you know, we sort of knew this time of the year would be the darkest months of this uh, pandemic, waiting for a vaccination, and yet uh, cases uh, still increasing. Now, the good news is, is that things seem to be plateauing, uh, not only in this province, but across the country as a result of, uh, you know, the lockdowns that are going on. But uh, it, it's pretty tough for people. Do you, do you find people's heads are in a different place now than they were a few months, even just a couple of months ago? I, I think so, but only because because of the fact that, that I think we're closer to the end of this now than, than mm-hmm. we are the beginning, if you will. And uh, and I think that, that there's a little more optimism out there, there that people are are a little more relaxed uh, in terms of keeping the restrictions. They're not as, as frustrated about it. But at the same time, you know, we've been, we've been locked up at home. So, so there, you know, there is that issue. There's still some stresses that, that are involved there. But I think that people are beginning to see that light at the end of the, uh, end of the tunnel. And despite the news that, that there seems to be like one hurdle after another in terms of getting the vaccine in Canada, there is some good news. You know, I know in the, in the Niagara region, for example, all of the long-term care facility patients have received the first vaccine shot. Mm-hmm. So um, we are making progress, albeit slow. And, you know, if you hear something like that, it's, it's pretty good news to me. Uh, and thank you for taking everything that I'm saying that might be negative and trying to spin it around, Jimmy. I really do appreciate that because <laughs> um, I am. I'm having a bad day today. Well, uh, but, you know, you know, I, you know I, I, I want you to recall then uh, your commentary uh, on, I think it was Monday, which, uh, which was very good. And you talked about joy and you talked about how joy takes some work. But the rewards of that work are, are astronomical, are immeasurable. And so, you know, if you get down, think about what you said on Monday. Cling on to those words about, uh, do you remember what they were? Do you remember that? 
<laughs> Don't listen to me. I'm full of crap. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're right. You're absolutely no, but, correct. I mean, I mean, they are good words. Reach out, connect. You know, we could still, we have the technology, thank God, to, to, to do that sort of thing in the middle of a pandemic. Can you imagine 30 years ago when we didn't? Yeah. When we didn't have the internet. Mm-hmm. Right? When we didn't have Zoom, when we couldn't see one another face-to-face, we would be trying to fly around these VHSs and stuff and shipping them all over the place. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so I think, it's a, I think that, that technology is a blessing, and take advantage of that. And, and, and as you said, just reach out. Continue to reach out. Don't stop reaching out. And we'll get through this. It'll be over before we know it. It seems to me that is in, you know, again, you know where I'm coming from today. Um, as we're, as we're getting through the latter stages of this and the fatigue is hitting in that sometimes we're turning on each other. Uh, especially during, you know, a shutdown. What person's going out? How come I don't get to go out? Da, 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 da. Um, you know, and that sort of thing. How do we remember to be respectful of others? in this situation, uh, considering we're not all the same? Well, one of the, point, the, the ways I look at it is that, you know, I'm not as smart as the people who are making these decisions for us. I don't have all the statistics. I don't know how viruses transfer, uh, particularly this one. So I understand that about myself. The second thing is, is I acknowledge the fact that this is, it's an ever-flux thing. I mean, we're learning stuff, uh, new things about the virus, day by day. So the restrictions that are down, my, you know, my only advice is, is to keep them. And, and if other people aren't, well, what can you do about it? I mean, yeah. sitting and complaining is not, is not going to do anything about it. Let, let, let the law enforcement or the bylaw enforcement officers or whatever, take, let, let it just take its course. Uh, but we can't, as individuals, concern ourselves with the fact that somebody's breaking the rules next door, so maybe I can too. Just continue to follow the science on this. And you'll be fine. You know, it's interesting. I I, I was talking to uh, a friend who was um, he's older than I am. I think he's eighty, and and we were chatting back and forth. And uh, you know, he said, "I'm doing my part, so that's all I can do is just do my part," which I thought was yeah. great advice. Well, you know, it is great advice, and that's advice of his generation, right? I mean, he yeah. you know he was he was he was he was there for, for you know for for the wars. He was. He was, uh, you know, he his, he lived in in a, in a real conflict, and I think that one of the big pushes around that time was was, you know, like I'm going to do my part, I'm going to do my part, my, I'm going to do my part, and that comes out of a sense of community in which he was raised, you know, being eighty, and uh, and I think many of us are raised in that in that as well. So we have to keep that in mind that you know we just we just have to do our part. Nothing is being required of you to police what other people are doing. Hmm. Just do your part, and you'll be okay. It's interesting. This was a, a gentleman who fled Europe uh, uh, after the war and such, and, and we obviously know what that was like. And he yeah. continually says to me, Canada's the best country in the world. Canada's the best country in the world, and we got to remember that. And, and you yeah. know that is. There's some, there's some wisdom here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We could be in, in worse circumstances. We're in a good country uh, where, you know, the, I mean, the politics aren't perfect, but they're there and they're stable. Um, and we live in a country that's advanced medically and, and technologically. And, uh, and I think that, that that's certainly works to our advantage and that we can find some peace in mind, a peace of mind in that for sure. 
The Reverend Jim Carrier has been with us from the Good Shepherd Church in St. Catharines. Make sure you check out Jim's Facebook page and find out what he's doing down there and spread the message uh, the message of hope. Jim, thanks very much for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, and be well this weekend. Thanks so much. You too, Scott. Take care and God bless. The you too. I think Jim's message was for me more than anyone uh, this time out, but I uh, I thank you for letting me to indulge. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. 911. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm out of cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh my God, the ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. We're going down. I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hurry, hurry. Hello? Are you